Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 269. So last week, I was working on that fan controller for the Jeep. This is the product that we talked about, like, several different ways to solve the override signal issue. Everything was, like, cascadingly larger in in project difficulty. Yeah, scope. Uh, it, it was like one step away from just redesigning the whole thing yourself. <laughs> Pretty close, yeah. Um, so that evening last week, I opened it up. And what's very interesting about it, about the enclosure, is it fits, everything about it fits tightly together. Like you undo the screws and it actually feels like it's glued together, how tight the panels fit, fit inside the enclosure. Um but there's no waterproof seals or anything in it. So I'm guessing it's just relies on it being a tight fit. Cause like the, the, the instructions say you can put it anywhere, quote anywhere like under the hood. And I'm like, well, it's going to get wet. It's Jeep. They want it to feel good. They don't want it to rattle or anything like that. I guess so. Um, but upon opening it, it definitely was not designed by Delta pag, which is the company who made the, who designed the fan and, Supposedly manufactures the fan too. They definitely did not design this controller though, um, because a U.S. designer would not use this microcontroller that's in there, and it's a part number G80F960AP, which is an 8051 core like generic Chinese microcontroller. Yeah, if you Google that part number, it's like my tweet and like three like Chinese data sheets show up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it does have a the dot ma- that not dot matrix the uh, seven segment display on the front is custom as well, like they rolled their own, um, I guess die or mold for the seven segment display because it has like all like the the bar graph for like how much power you're sending the fan and all that crazy stuff. And so I started looking basically the MCU option of like reprogramming the MCU. Was pretty much off the table because I wasn't going to try to figure out how to make the tool chain for that microcontroller work. Oh yeah, I'm sure that would be brutal. Yeah, I, I'm looking through my phone. Didn't you send me a picture of the board? Uh, maybe. I've not seen it. Whatever. Hmm. I, I I can post it online. Um. So the next thing I went through is like, okay, let's see how easy it would be to like just modify the circuit to make it work with a active high signal instead of an active low signal, which is that was the whole problem. The override signal is an active low, not an active high. And we want active high because that's how like everything in vehicles work. Um, and so what's interesting about the override signal goes through a diode and then it's just pulled up to five volts with a 10 K and then it goes into the microcontroller. So there's nothing like inverter circuit or anything like that on there. Um, and I'm pretty sure the diode is just to prevent backfeeding. If you accidentally do put 12 volts on it, that it doesn't just completely blow up the five volt regulator by backfeeding voltage into it. Well, I mean, is that pin? I mean, is that just like connected directly to a, the micro through a diode? Well, that's what I mean. Yes. Okay. So the it, other side of the diode is just the processor. Just the processor. Yeah. Okay. It's not like a driver or anything. Like that. No, no driver. Nothing we can like hack there. So pretty much the way to invert the signal, how I'm going to do it is I'm going to do it inside the box, 
I'm just going to use like a MOSFET, an end-channel MOSFET to pull down that override signal. Basically, I'm going to cut the trace inside there and then put this MOSFET with like a 10K pull down on the gate on the MOSFET. And so then my new 12-volt uh, active high signal goes into, I'm probably just going to use like a 100-ohm resistor to kind of like prevent the gate from being slammed by 12 volts. Um, and then have that pull down the five volt signal inside the mic in, inside the box that's then converts it to an active low. And so I put a little schematic. It's a simple MOSFET controller uh, or MOSFET inverter um, signal. So, you know, w one thing I, I, I'm looking at here that might be worthwhile is just on the gate of this uh, MOSFET add like a back to back. 18 or 20 volt zener or something like that just in case like large spikes show up on the on the um uh on the 12 volt rail such that you, it doesn't puncture the gate you know just yeah so, some some added protection yeah it's a little tvs on there yeah 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 and i'm usually these little mosfets have i don't know something in the 20 to 30 volt range is their maximum gate vgs or whatever so, so just something a little bit, something above twelve, but lower than that number. Yeah, I think I think the I think this one is thirty volts because it's a. I, I just chose a, a BSS one thirty eight because I have Classic. like. Yeah, it's the generic end channel MOSFET or, or the two N seven thousand. Yeah, that too. But I got tons of these little guys, so I'm just going to use him. Oh yeah, um, no, the absolute like, max gate source voltage is plus minus twenty. So. Uh, maybe maybe like fifteens uh, back to back or something like that. Yeah, that would be fine. Especially if this thing is semi critical. Uh, well, the override signal technically not, but yeah, but you're right. Cool. So that's what I'm going to do to fix it. Now, probably actually going to spin a little board to make it work instead of debugging <laughs> it inside of there. Oh, come on. You don't want to do, uh, uh, what, what did we coin it the other day? Uh, Cthulhu style? Cthulhu style? No. I kind of <laughs> want this thing to be reliable. So I'm going to spin a little one-sided board to, so I can just like kind of like super glued this board down and then put a little jumper wires off of it to connect to the board. And then I'll just hot snot the snot out of it. Should be, should be good. Nice. I'm uh I, I'm getting a little bit better at Cthulhu style. I, I had to do some some Cthulhu today on a new design because I just needed an an op amp buffer, and yeah. uh, so just dead bugged an op amp on top of another op amp such that I could bend the pins down and just access the power, and then tombstoned a bunch of resistors, not a bunch, two of them, and and just passed everything around and got a uh, got a buffer pretty easily. And and if you're you can really only see it if you're paying attention because there's two op amps stacked on top of each other. <laughs> so is getting better at Cthulhu style mean that it's more organized or less organized? Getting better at Cthulhu style is such that I can hand it to my testers and they don't comment on it. <laughs> They're just getting used to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I honestly, like... Okay, so I have the choice. I could spin another board and make this simple fix, or I could just do it really quickly like this and then know that my next board spin will work. I'll choose this, you know? Because mm -hmm. spinning a board takes a long time. Oh, yes, it does.
Okay, so I, I ran into a uh, an interesting thing uh, that I've always I've always heard about in in terms of like people having problems with it, but I've never actually really it I've never had it be an actual issue for me. So I actually had a problem with component crosstalk this week, and I'm talking about internal to a component. Oh, and, okay. Because I know a while back we talked about PCB crosstalk. Right, right, and and how to avoid it and things. And in fact. I think crosstalk is a is a term that that engineers throw around a lot when and 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 they blame crosstalk for things that are probably not actually crosstalk they're just potentially maybe subpar design or or a handful of other things. Uh I actually read into internal component crosstalk and it's it's such a rare thing in in my work at least that it took me forever to figure it out and I was banging my head on a table because like I, I just wasn't able to unlock my mind and consider that that was the thing that was causing this. Because I, I, I started going into that. You have one of those Illuminati moments then. <laughs> Illuminati, sure. Yeah. A little triangle eye appeared above my head. On your forehead. On my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the thing is like, okay, so I got into that, 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 that problem where you can, where you see an issue with your circuit and then you start questioning what's causing and you start trying to diagnose blah 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 and then you then your mind starts to really go and you start thinking about more and more obscure things and then you get into this really dark place and so so okay i ran into this issue with a tube circuit um not a not a solid state circuit but this this totally applies in solid state land too so so here's here's the situation i'm i'm building an amp with a buddy and I have a very uh, generic uh, gain structure in this amp. So basically you have an input, it goes into a common cathode or uh, common emitter stage uh, amplifier. Out of that, it goes into some, some user controls, including a volume control, and then that dumps into another stage. Super vanilla, super generic, super, super simple. So here's the, the issue that I was running into. If you turned the gain or the volume down all the way, which is basically a potentiometer that connects those two stages, you're shunting the signal from the first stage to ground, such that the second stage doesn't get signal whatsoever. But if you apply an input, a signal to the input, you were get, I was getting an output from both stages, even though I had my potentiometer shunted to ground, turned all the way down and it was just driving me insane because it's so funny i've used the word crosstalk a handful of times um and and even in in you know at at work not even just my own hobby uh projects and whatnot but never have i actually had it be this kind of problem and and i have to admit this problem is is a little bit ridiculous in terms of the situation I ran into is not a normal situation. In other words, I had a frequency generator that I was putting into my circuit. I was pumping like a pretty large signal into it. I was applying, I don't know, what, what 60 times gain to that signal such that my very first stage in this amp was pumping out like 120 volts peak to peak uh, out of it. <laughs> and then and then I was wondering why I was getting 5 millivolts on the output of the second stage. But, but so, so the thing is though, like if you have the volume down, the user expects there it to be dead silent, right? So what's happening there? Uh, 
after after like just beating my head on the table for a while, I just realized, they, hey, these tubes have two stages inside of them, and they can bleed internally. They and so the, the two stages internally. are just next to each other. Just yeah, they're next to it. They're in very close proximity to each other. One of the stages was useless, doing nothing. The second, the but the other stage was there, cranking out like every bit of juice it possibly could. Uh, so go figure. They crosstalk between each other, and and it's it's funny because it made me think about it. Like in so many in so many situations, you just don't run into that. So you see things like crosstalk figures on um, on an op amp data sheet. It'll be like 120 decibel dB or negative 120 decibels and you just like you kind of gloss over that because it's just like okay whatever but like that is a thing that actually comes into play and sometimes you have to be careful about that so uh this is this is just one of those situations where i even called up a buddy who has an amp that has uh that i know has the same general structure and i was like i just need you to fact check me here Turn your volume all the way down and put a signal into it. Do you hear anything? And of course, yeah, he does. And that's on a production amp. That's on a that's on a big company. Like they just don't care about it. Uh, so that's something that I wasn't necessarily, excuse me, wanting to uh, design into my stuff. So I ended up just reconfiguring the gain stages such that um, one of my tubes that has two sections in it is only half of. Um, Basically, I split the gain stages between two different tubes as opposed to putting them both inside one. So it's impossible for, the, for one channel to bleed into another one now. Um, but it, that's, it, I, I don't know, it kind of made me smile after I was pissed off for like a full day at this thing because it's just like, why didn't I think about that? Um, <laughs> so, so I got a question. Is You yeah. mentioned the, the um, rejection to crosstalk figure that's in an... In an op amp yep you said like negative 120 db which is like insanity right oh uh, it's like yeah yeah and 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 that's just a number i pulled out of my butt yeah i know i know yeah. but like <laughs> is there a figure like that for those tubes you know what's what's interesting is i've seen that before but mainly on like forums and things like that so i don't know exactly how accurate it is what you do see more often is capacitance um like uh, a capacitance between two channels and then depending on the impedance of your channel you can sort of back calculate what you might see on the other side yeah what kind of coupling you'll get yeah yeah uh so the answer is no but i can tell you this it's not yes. it's not particularly <laughs> good but it's also not it's i've only ever run into it now so let's just put it that way you know and and like i said I was putting a massive signal into the input and uh, 100 volts or 120 volts or whatever on the first section produced 5 millivolts on the other section. So you, I guess you could back calculate what that <laughs> crosstalk is, right? Yeah. Uh, but in other words, it's not much. But the thing is, that 5 millivolts that comes off the other stage gets amplified multiple it goes into times power later stage. on. Well, but no, there's more preamp gain after that so it does get amplified enough to be audible so uh that was the biggest thing is like in thinking about how the user interacts with things will that confuse somebody if they have uh if they turn their volume all the way down but they yet they can still hear something and the answer is yeah of course it'll confuse them that's why i checked with someone else who has something out there and that's 
I'm using air quotes, normal operation. But like I said, I had, I have a solution that should just demolish that altogether. Only problem now is it's, it's traditional to have two adjacent stages next to each other in one tube package because uh, they'll be out of phase with each other. So you don't get positive feedback. But if you start sharing between even numbers of stages, there's a chance you'll get positive feedback. In, uh, and so then you have chances for oscillation and things like that. So I'm giving some other stuff a try right now, but uh, having to see uh, what's the result of potential um, oscillation feedback. Hmm. So, you know, when those, when those um, figures are on a data sheet, they actually do mean something. And and this can not can this certainly does apply in the solid state realm in uh, op amps and, and things like that. But you know you're not usually talking about ginormous signals like 120 volts. <laughs> no, not yet. Well, yes, I, I guess it depends. But yeah, for most most microcontroller or low low or uh, solid state stuff, you're correct. Yeah. 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 In fact, I'm just curious now. Uh, I want to know what is the crosstalk figure for a TL084 between the the four packages inside. What is it going to be? Because I mean, the, the basically the uh, the largest. Uh, well, you can you can run a TL084 on 36 volts, so you can expect something around, say, 30 volts maximum signal if you wanted to just juice a TL084. So, I, I guess I should have been prepared for this. Live readings of data sheets. It's exactly what everyone wanted. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. That's common mode. Oh, crosstalk, crosstalk attenuation. It says 120 decibels. Yeah. That's virtually nothing right <laughs> calculation see what the db redu reduction was too let's go to google and type db2 decibel you said it was point you said what five millivolts out oh uh yeah 100 and 120 volt peak to peak in five millivolts peak to peak out so that's like a 2400 reduction like ratio which is like what negative 70 no, like negative sixty-five dB, something like that. Sounds about right. Let me see. Here. I'm just looking at like a decibel to voltage gain loss converter chart, and it's somewhere in there. So that's not terrible. No, that's not terrible. It's it's half as good as the theoretical op amp that you said. <laughs> theoretical. What was the uh, the, the op amp you just looked up? What was the TL084? Yeah, what was the... Oh, it, uh, 120 decibels is what it says crosstalk attenuation is. Okay, so you were actually correct yeah. when you said 120. So your tubes are a little bit over half as good as... Well, half as good in a linear sense, but DB is, uh, is logarithmic, right? So actually that op amp is insane compared to... <laughs> yeah. Uh, comparatively. Because what, if it was... Yeah. Yeah, because it's logarithmic. Yeah. So it's not half. It's like a quarter as good. <laughs> Something like that. Ten to the uh yeah, ten to the negative sixth is the voltage ratio uh for yeah. crosstalk on those op amps. So 
that's pretty good. In other words, like this is probably why I haven't run into this before is because like we're talking about low voltages and then insane crosstalk. So yeah. the only time I ran into it is when I put a tube in a really ridiculous situation and just yeah. juiced it, you know? Yeah. I will say it's, it, your tube's not handling 3.3 volts. It's handling 120 volts <laughs> and it's still only 0.05 volts out, which is oh, oh, 05. Yeah. But oh, it was still enough to get signal through. Which yep. is uh, annoying. You could just put like a double gain potentiometer that turned that stage down too. The output I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. No, you totally can. Well, and, and there... Okay, so there is another volume control later in the amp. Like down the road. So... Is it called super volume? Well, the first one's called gain and the, and the last one's called volume. Ah, uh, okay. Right. So once again, this is another situation that's kind of ridiculous where the only way you could hear something is if you have the master volume, i.e. the one later on down the signal chain, cranked all the way up, and then you had the first volume, the gain knob, turned all the way down. That's the only situation. And you had a massive signal going into Yeah, massive it. input signal. So right. like, what, what, what is a mat? What signal were you putting into it? I had I had just like a one kilohertz uh, sine wave that was at one, like one and a half volt uh, peak. So what? So this is a. I'm going to assume this is a guitar amplifier. So what's a normal guitar signal like? Well, that th that's a really hard thing to answer, mainly because a regular guitar signal is all over the place. Are you strumming? Are you picking single notes? Are you well? Like if you were going like. Eddie Van Halen at the guitar full on how how big of a signal could you push out of a guitar so like with the hottest pickups and like like just strumming your face off you might get like 2 volts 2 to 3 volts peak something like that okay uh on the initial transient when the pick strikes the string like i've seen up to 4 okay so 4 4 volts but as soon as like it decays off and you're sustaining, it drops to like one to three hundred millivolts, something like that. Okay. So that initial hit is huge, but ish. Like I, so, I have two guitars. So on one of them, it's like a volt and a half or something like that, and on the uh, on the other guitar, it's like half a volt for that initial strike. So I was being unfair, but I was also trying to break my circuit and see like where are all of its failures. Yep. Like a good engineer. Of course, yeah. So Pinotar Revision 4 has hit the house. Uh-oh. Bom bom bom. Oh, it's red. It's red. Back Feb red. Yeah. The uh the so, logo on the back is cool. Yeah, and uh, so, yeah, I have the Pinotar logo on the back, but that is changing. Uh-oh. It's going to have something special on the back. Uh-oh. Did you hire an artist to do something? Maybe? He's going to keep talking. <laughs> um, so I still got to do the through hole on it. Um, basically, I'm waiting for Mauser to, like, have a box show up tonight, and then I'm going to start soldering like crazy because I got seven boards to populate through hole on. And um, Mauser and DigiKey are like delaying shipments right now. Oh, yeah. So 
and by de- by delaying, like I, I just got a Mauser shipment in, but by delaying, like it's a m- the normal like three day shipment is has like six now. <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad. No, it's not at all. And then I got, I built boards for the uh, the production LED boards, and so I added a little tag connect to them so you, I can easily spot check if the LEDs are good. Um, instead of having to plug into like the locking JST connector, I can just put a tag connect on and the tag connect will send five volts ground and the communication signal. So I, I actually, uh, Parker and I were talking about that a little bit earlier. Um, the, uh, the tag connect thing. So ba- uh, basically you're just using that to, to test all of your little LED boards, right? Yes. So, so I'm curious. Do you just do you have like a script that's talking to uh, the tag connect, or I guess an ST link or something like that? Or how how are you actually like you're sending data through? Oh yeah. So it's a um. I have the boxes, and basically I just I'm gonna I'm I have a box that's got a nine volt battery in it. It's one of those project boxes with with a battery compartment, and then. Um, there's just an Arduino Nano in there. And it's oh, just, okay. And then you press a button, and it powers up the Arduino Nano, and then it just spits. It basically just immediately starts spitting five volts out on the Technic in the communication. So. Oh, okay. Is it just like continuously dropping? Just like it's just spitting out communication such that you can hot plug it in, and, and then it yeah, just lights so up. So you can hot plug it in, and it cycles between white, uh, red, green, blue, and then goes back to white and cycles those three or four that's a really convenient way for testing arrays of boards yes so you, i mean you just plug it in and look and you're done yeah Easy. Just plug it in and look make sure it cycles all the colors and then you're good to go actually if why even do all three colors if you have white then isn't that good enough well so you might actually i was actually thinking about not even doing white and just doing red green blue sure because um the main thing is making sure all the intensities are there. So, because you could have like a weak blue or, or a weak green or a weak red and it will still look white in color. So, you are correct. You could just have white, but then you have to be like, okay, is it a cool white? Is it a warm white? <laughs> yeah, you're right. If it's just 100% red, green, and blue, that's a lot easier to check. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Hopefully next week I have an update on or in two weeks I have an update on like making sure like the Pinatar is like production certified in quotes. So you said you're building seven of them, right? Are, are these going to go in some machines? They're going into some machine. One staying with me for hardware ver- validation. Um, one is going over to MPF, which is mission mission pinball framework, which is a open source project to do like the high level code side of pinball platforms. And so they, uh, that is a really cool community and a really cool, um, piece of software where basically you can like script out your pinball machine, the code. And then all you have to do is just change the header file to be like Pinatar, or I want to do like, um, Fast Pinball, which is another platform. Like, all you have to do is just change the header, and then, like, it just works. That's cool. It, it does all the glue logic for the high level to low level. Um, so it handles, like, sound and audio visuals and that kind of stuff. So are you providing software support for your boards? 
for, only for the firmware that's oh, on the microcontroller. Right, right. And it that what so what you do is you, this you plug this board the Pentar via USB into a computer, and the computer is running the pinball software, and then the pinball software is telling the board, "Hey, what is this, what are these switches? Send these lights, that kind of stuff." You know, I'm, I'm sure it's kind of like the CNC controller right. where you have a PC that's actually running the G code and doing all the high level stuff. And it's telling a CNC board, you know, and the CNC board's handling the moving the steppers around. Think about it like that. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've asked this question before, though. Um, I, there's is there like on the computer side of things where they actually write the game? I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there like unified codes for like this is a flipper, this is a light, this is a blah blah blah? It it depends on. There's a couple of different high level stuff, but Mission Pinball Frameworks like that. Yeah, got it. So this week, you think you'll have a handful of them running? I hope so. But yeah, one goes to the MPFs because they have an older prototype, and I want to get like a production ready into their hands, and then the rest go up uh, to Wisconsin. Nice. So it should be pretty good. So this is a question that has been on our list for a couple of weeks now. We just haven't gotten to it. And I don't know what actually, because this is a question that Steven wanted to ask. It's, and I'm actually really curious of what, what caused this. <laughs> well, okay. So to, to uh, 2010, I think 2010, maybe 2011. I, I did an open source uh, PCB. Okay, you're talking about the year 2010. Yeah, the year 2010. Okay. I was a year out of college, and in my first apartment, I just cooked up a PCB design go figure for a guitar amp, and uh, and I, and I posted it all on a on a forum, and it was it was actually way more than just a PCB because it was like custom transformer specs. It was a full chassis design. It was like the whole system. It was everything. Um, I provided it all, and uh, I built one, my buddy built one, and then on this forum, there was probably at least 10 other people who built them. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and it was, it was, it was awesome. Um, I got the boards made, a handful of other people etched their own uh, and, and stuff, and what was, what was interesting is there was one individual on there that uh, we kind of, uh, I kind of helped him out with a handful of things, and he never actually finished they that that thing well fast forward to uh, like a, a few weeks ago i get a message on the forum which by the way like i don't really go to that forum much anymore i go every once in a while to just look at stuff i just randomly stumbled upon that forum and and saw that i had multiple messages from that that one guy who didn't ever finish this project that was um it, it was a lot of it was kind, but there was a lot of, oh, this doesn't work. I need your help. Give me some help. And I'm like, dude, this is like a decade old. I don't even have the files anymore. I don't even remember it. I've actually rebuilt that thing, redesigned it, and rebuilt it twice since then. So I don't even remember what those original files look like. I pulled the original files from, from Google because I didn't want to support them anymore. This was well before GitHub was a thing, so I, I had like a, a Google Share thing going on where people could request access to get these files. And and what's what's really funny is that this guy um, did actually solve all of these things even even after uh, sending all of these 
like I need help. I need you to support this project from a decade ago. And he, and he, and he sent me a nice message saying like, Oh, I just found that there was this one issue with my board and replaced a handful of things and it, and it works out well. And he even put up like a YouTube video, I think of, uh, of him playing on it, which was cool. But, but it got me thinking it was like, how, how reason, like what's a reasonable time frame that somebody should support their open source design. And what's reasonable in terms of like, not demanding, uh, uh, what is it? Resources or or asking for support on it, but like, what's a re- like, what's reasonable to ask the original designer on? Yeah, I, I, it it really depends on that second question. It really depends on like what if it's a single person running the 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 project. Like I, my expectation for for me at least is zero. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's great. Um, because it when you if it's just one person doing a project, it's their hobby. Majority of the time, it's their hobby. And asking them a question is usually okay, but demanding or expecting an answer is usually not the right way to go. Yeah, and 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 I hope I didn't paint this guy as like a jerk or anything like that. He's actually super kind, but but like the the the, the phrasing that that was used in it was like, "I must have your help," kind of thing. And I get he was perhaps a little bit frazzled uh, in in asking for that, but it was also yeah. like, "Geez, like I'm 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 lucky that I logged into this old forum just to see, and there was a message for me on there." Yeah, the um, I, I guess it might be also be. I kind of view open source stuff, especially open source hardware, um, a little bit differently than some people do. I I view open source hardware as a way to figure out and learn about a project and how it functions so I can incorporate that knowledge and someone else's uh, techniques into my ideas and projects. Um, there's a whole, like, we can go down the rabbit hole of the whole idea of like open source is um, for cloning and for driving down PCB like hardware costs, which is one way to think about it from a designer perspective. I don't like that idea. Um, we might get some hate. I might get some hate mail for that one. Um, but uh, yeah, because because when you think about it is um, you like, let's let's wind the clock back. 11 years to when you were doing that. Were you expecting to make any sorts of money on that project? Oh, I lost a ton of money doing that. <laughs> That's how, so it's a, pro, it was, it's a hobby. <laughs> oh, it was a hundred percent a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, no, I mean, I wasn't even expecting to, you know, spend, spend money doing stuff, but, but there was, there was some, I don't know. Regard. I, I had to ship transformers to overseas you know, to guys Ooh, who man. needed them. And, and that was great and all, but, uh, um, the, I, I spec transformers. They cost a bunch of money. People paid me for them. And then the transformers came in and they didn't have dual primaries. And, uh, even though I had specced dual primaries, so I had to fight and duke it out with the, uh, transformer company. And they ended up, you know, doing a whole nother round of transformers, but on my dollar at a significantly reduced cost, kind of thing but i had to eat that because no one on the forum wanted to pay extra because they were like you said it was coming with dual primaries so basically to make sure that like 
I was in good standing on the forum. I ate a couple hundred bucks to make everyone happy. So yeah, garbage. Yeah. Uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But I mean, I ended up with like 10 transformers that I use for other things. So it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I got them for a cheap price. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, in terms of statue of lip statue of liver, uh, <laughs> libertation, <laughs> limiting. Yeah. Yeah. Limitations. That's what the word I want. Um, on a project, I would say, I would say a couple years, three years. I think. Yeah. Past that, it's it's kind of like it's it's dead. Well, and and also, okay, so you have to look at okay, yeah, right. So if say say it's three years in, and you see that that user is super hyperactive in whatever place they're at be it github or on a forum or something like that maybe it's longer than three years but if you if you see that that thing the, if the last conversation about that project happened years and years ago like that's a good indicator that it's probably not supported no 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 i, no, I totally agree with you on that other on if, if it's if it's the person's still talking about it or people are still using it then yes i would say it's that's the point when it goes cold when the project goes cold, then it's like, okay, three years later. That's when, when if you need to use that, that project and there's a problem you need to solve, that's when you fork it and improve upon the project. Use that project as your initial knowledge base and learn and grow and make that project better and contribute. That That's contribute. That's That's the key word in open source that a lot of people don't seem to grasp. I, attributing. I think I think I mean 100% agree with you on that. Uh, but I think that there's a, a problem in open source world where people think, hey, there's this thing on the internet that if I just follow these instructions, then I get a thing that does everything I want it to, and it works. And that's hardly ever the case, at least in my experience. Uh, I, I think sort of going on what what you said earlier about you know there's there's some expectations with. Uh, open source uh, hardware specifically, I think that one big expectation that should be there is that you're you're building this at your own risk, uh, and if there's problems, you should be the first thing to see what the problem is. In other words, you, if you turn it on and it doesn't work immediately, you don't instantaneously go to the original designer or the forums and say, "What's wrong?" Like it's a kind of up to you to go look and figure it out, you know? Yeah. It's, um, this might sound weird or may not weird, but, um, it's, it's something I've noticed on like the Arduino forums and stuff. People will buy like clones of boards and then wonder why stuff doesn't work. And it's like, you know, you're putting a lot of onus on something that you like didn't give money or effort into into the community um that's why like i will buy i only buy like legit arduinos and stuff like that because when i go to like arduino.com for or cc or whatever it is now you know i don't know if that dust ever settle between like the two arduinos of the world uh well i i don't know remember that we've talked about that a bunch genduino which is like the genuine how oh genuino yeah 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 um and that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Like I, I completely even forgot about that. We talked about that on like an episode a long time ago. Yeah. Um, 
it's like that, but that is why I I will buy the hardware because I know I'm not going to be able to contribute to the open source software side, like the IDE, all the libraries. I won't be able to contribute to that because I'm not, in my mind, I am not good enough to be able to fix bugs on that software. There's way better uh, developers and programmers in the world that will work on that. So what? how can I give back and is by buying the official hardware so that they have money to be able to support the forms and be able to support hardware development, all that good stuff. And so when you take that away, uh, if you buy clones, then what do you give back to the community? You have to give back in either software or something like that. Um, I know if you're just beginning out, it's buy what you want to buy. I'm not going to tell you otherwise, but it's that's just in my mind. Sure. Is I, I view open source as a community driven and emphasis on the community and giving back to it. You 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 don't have to give back right away, but plan on doing it if, is a good way to do it. Um, or if you know the answer to somebody's woes, question, yeah, yeah, answering answer questions, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a huge part of it. Yeah. And you, and you never know. You may be that guy who has the answer to something where someone's searching like 10 years down the road and they found your answer and it's exactly what they needed to get through. Exactly what they needed. Yeah. Yep. That's a stack exchange like every day for a bazillion people. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I'll catch flack for that I, for that that thought process on it. But because um, I know that, that was sort of stuff big- is really polarizing. It is very polarizing. It's for a while we like you and I kind of just like stop working in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I kind of stopped building hardware that's open source. Like um, Pinhack was an open source hardware project. And uh, we had a we had a group of people that decided to say, oh, we don't care about that license. So we're going to steal all your stuff. So that was a lot of fun. Hmm. Um. So that kind of put a sour taste, I guess, in my mouth for open source stuff for me doing, putting a lot of effort into, and then someone just going, I'm going to clone that. I mean, what kind of enforcement is there? None, right? Uh, technically, uh, since they broke the license agreement, I, I, I could bar them shipping them into the United States, but they don't ship them into the United States. So it's like, I can't do anything. I mean, but which... But but what governing body uh, recognizes oh, your customs. license agreement? Customs, Cust- U.S. Customs, yeah. Cust- uh, U.S. Customs recognizes the open source license because they violated the the license I had on it, so it would violate copyright. But what I'm saying is, could, did you write that license, or did you use like a can? I use license? a I use uh, Creative Commons 4.0. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so if you wanted to pursue it, you could. But it would just be a huge time and money waste for you. Well, the, on, the only thing I could really do, because it's a group in China, the only thing I could really do is bar them from being able to sell them basically in the United States. Are, do the boards even look similar? Uh, No, they don't. Oh, okay. But the but the circuits probably I, almost identical. The circuits are 100% identical. Really? <laughs> yeah. What and are they, they called? I, like, I, I didn't know. And that. they even uh, they even ripped off like the code because like oh because you posted we had it some, all up there. 
right? What was that? Well, I mean, it was all up there, right? Well, they used an older version of the software and that we, because we stopped putting the code uh, publicly as well because we noticed this group was stealing stuff. And that's what it's called, people. It's theft. If you break the license, it's theft. Um, and uh, so they were using in like they had a bunch of workarounds because we fixed some low level stuff that like for like updating the firmware and stuff on the board that they couldn't have. And they were using like so Ben Ben Heckendorn did like the low level code for like the tech for the text driver that goes onto the screen. And he used like a modified like Atari 800 font. OK. Like he took the Atari 800 font and like modified it to make it work on the dot matrix display. So it's like no one would use that font because we custom made it. Mm. They had that font. Oh, so they yeah they straight yeah. ripped it. And we we were using a parallax propeller and a Pic 32 as our two microcontrollers. The propeller was using doing the audio video, and the Pic 32 was doing the uh, the low level like solenoid drivers and stuff. No one in their right mind would use a parallax propeller for what we did for. And it was all an assembly code to make it run fast enough. They had the same architecture and they wired up all the parallax propeller stuff exactly the same way we did it. Yeah, well, so yeah, so it's an exact yeah. copy. It was a, it, the schematic was a direct clone. So yeah, that was not a good time in the pinball world, I guess, for that. Um, so I actually, because of that whole experience, I kind of stopped doing open source hardware. Um, Pinatar is the schematic will be open, but the fir- the hardware will not be. I'm curious um, why. Even and the schematic's going to be open, so it's easier to, for people to fix. Oh, okay, got you. And and this is how again it goes. It rolls back to how I view what is important in a circuit for um, what is important to learn from a circuit in open source. Most of the time, it's not the layout. It's the schematic. How does that circuit function? Now, sometimes the layout might matter, like if it's a switch mode power supply or or some you know analog voodoo front end stuff that you, the routing is very important for. But this the Pintar is 100% digital. There's nothing that is like non-reference design in the layout. <laughs> it's just all stitched together. It's just all stitched together. Yeah. But the thing is how it's stitched together is through the schematic. And so how the schematic functions, that's where the where you learn from the Pinatar. If you were going to learn something as a hardware designer through the Pinatar, it'd be by looking at the schematic. The layout is nothing special about it. So, and again, the only, only thing about putting the layout out there just makes it easier for someone to clone it. Putting the schematic out there, okay, someone's actually got to at least design the board at that point. So, and I know it's like, oh, you know, someone could just depop the board and scan the layers in. Yeah, you can do that. But at least I got 200 and whatever dollars for selling that board, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So that person gave back to the maker at least. Right. So. Okay. Trying not to sound like a stick in the mud or anything about it. I love open source stuff. 
So I get to learn so much about uh, other people's designs and, you know, I mean, that's how I, I, I didn't learn layout from college. I learned layout on my own looking at other boards. hundred percent. So, so uh, three years seems like the right amount. <laughs> that the answer to this long-winded question <laughs> went down this rabbit hole. Yeah. So, I, I, I'm actually going to be really curious of what people on Twitter and in our Slack channel will say about this question and what not where they, what side of the aisle, so to speak in open source hardware that they line up on. Zero, zero years is not good enough and infinite is too much. So something, something in between those two numbers is the right number. If. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in there, I would say three. I think that's three is about yeah because after three if it's been dead for more than three years asking that person that person probably doesn't remember anymore <laughs> yeah like I Honestly. said I don't even have uh, anything anymore I don't have any of the design files I don't have anything from what I was asked for so it's yeah. just I'm picking through my memory yeah and ten years is a long time to pick through your filing cabinet in your brain oh yeah I mean that yeah that 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 project that project worked I mean I like it was fine um i would never do it that way again i mean i've learned a lot in in over 10 years uh it was it was totally fine uh, for the time and the way i designed it was the way that everyone was doing it at that time it's just a it's a different flavor of how they were doing it so uh everyone was fine with with the way the design worked but like i said i would never do it that way again and i kind of shudder thinking about how i approached a lot of those design aspects uh, just uh, I, lab- it's labor intensive building, and I I hate yeah. that nowadays. <laughs> oh yeah, that is right. A lot of your um, ideas that you share on the podcast in terms of amp design is like, how can I make this lazier? Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. As I'm getting older, I want to do. If I see a wire, I get mad. I don't want to wire anything anymore. I, I I don't mind soldering components. I love soldering components. That's fun. But I hate wires. So the uh, the less I have to strip wires and solder to things, the better. All right. We got one more topic for today. So surprisingly, I have an automotive topic uh, to bring up, uh, which is normally one of, one of uh, Parker's things here. But uh, just a, 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 an interesting note, I think the automotive industry has taken a shotgun blast to the gut in the last year or so. So the, uh, uh, a, a 300 millimeter silicon line um, from uh, Renesis. Is that how big the wafers are? Yeah, that's the wafer size. Uh, so uh, yeah, three, a big a wafer. 300 millimeter line from the Renesis factory in Japan, the Naka or NAK, I don't know how to pronounce it, but... Uh, caught on fire last Friday and has gone down. And uh, apparently, it's it, they're talking about upwards of a month or two before they start like piecing everything together and getting it back up and running. The thing about this is two thirds of everything that came out of that factory was uh, automotive ICs, and uh, it's oh no, yeah, and, and so they're already reporting that both Toyota and Tesla used uh, things from that were. Uh, manufactured at this facility and they're going to start seeing delays on things because of this and it was part of the electroplating section of the uh 
of the factory. And so it, it just seems like it seems like the automotive industry can't get a break right now. And I mean, we've been talking about this for how long now? A few, a few weeks, um, uh, at least two months now. Yeah. So, um, nothing like not a whole lot more to say about that. It's just, I, I, I chuckled a little bit, but I'm also a little bit heartbroken that, that, uh, another IC factory is, is really going under. Um, but the uh, good thing is no one was hurt in this. It's just a large portion of the factory was burned. Mm-hmm. I th- oh, that sucks. I think we have uh, we have some. There's some shit in store. I think I think the the U.S. economy and uh, automotive is uh, we've got some stuff coming down the line. Let's just say that it's not it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, the supply chain is getting really ravaged right now yeah. on electronics. Yeah. And it's 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 not because like it, it's because well, it's because consumers are wanting to buy a lot of stuff now. The man like the man is going crazy. And then but on the supply side, one, all the suppliers for like six months didn't do anything last year. Like didn't prep at all because all everyone else was shutting down their orders because you had all those automotive companies shutting down their orders saying, hey, we're not we're going to cancel all our you know orders six to eight months out now. And so now you have all these component manufacturers either going out of business or having to get rid of everyone, all you know, all their technicians and stuff because they can't they're not selling anything. And then you have, then basically, you know, eight months later, everyone's cranking those knobs back up. And then the, the component industry is just like, wait, Uh what? (laughs) Yeah. There's there. We're, we're, we're starting to see that, that, um, droop that, that the recovery is, uh, out of phase with the, uh, with the request. Right. So, yes, uh, it, it will come back of course, but, uh, we're, we're seeing that droop. So we'll probably see similar to what was it twenty? When was like the capacitor stuff? That was like twenty seventeen. Seventeen eighteen. Yeah, um, where basically how component manufacturers fixed that problem was they didn't build new lines or anything. They just consolidated a lot of product lines, which they should have done anyways because there's a lot of redundancy and a lot of product lines. Probably we'll see the same thing here. Is we'll see a lot of manufacturers moving away from their really inexpensive stuff and going towards more of the high margin stuff and just kind of obsoleting a lot of their old stuff. So you might not be able to get those pick 16s anymore. How are you going to make clones of Arduinos if you can't get the cheap stuff? Oh, the 18 mega 328Ps? <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? I Okay, I bet you. The fact that you can buy cloned Arduinos for cheaper than you can buy an AT Mega 328P. I'm going to, to go out on a limb there and say those AT Mega 328Ps on those clones are probably not real at Mega Chips. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> and with that Illuminati moment, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Sparky Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.